Hi, this is Brian Dolan with the law firm Pepper Hamilton. Each month, Pepper partner Greg Novak hosts a webinar for West Legal Ed Center, which focuses on issues that are affecting private funds and their managers. You can download a copy of the PowerPoint slides that the presenters went through by visiting Pepper's Insight Center at www.pepperlaw.com, where this podcast is posted. Thank you. This is Greg Novak from Pepper Hamilton. I'm in the uh, New York office of Pepper Hamilton on a very gloomy um, September afternoon. Uh, hopefully, wherever you are and listening, it's uh, sunny and bright and not quite as rainy. But in any event, welcome to our program this afternoon. Uh, please, if you have any questions during the program, feel free to type them in. Uh, I do have the ability to see them, um, and therefore, our encouraging you to forward whatever questions you might have so that I can address them during the course of the presentation today. We're doing something a little bit different for the webinars this fall, and welcome um, those of you who are on hiatus this summer with us. Um, Over the next four months, including this month, we're doing a life cycle of an investment fund series. So today is choosing the right structure, the right entity for your private fund. And for those of you who are seasoned managers or counsel to seasoned managers or accountants, um, many of the topics that we're talking about will seem to be old hat. However, I'm going to point out during the course of the presentation some twists and turns that we've seen recently and new innovations in the creation of structures that uh, you should be aware of, and certainly if these spark interest, please feel free to give me a call or, as I said, raise a question during the program. And just to give you a little bit of uh, a highlight on what we're planning going forward, in October, our program will be on outsourcing options, including trading, chief investment officer outsiding, compliance outsourcing, as well as uh, chief financial officer outsourcing. Being an attorney at a law firm, I guess you could say that lawyers were the first outside consultants to be engaged by clients, and what we're seeing is this trend to outsourcing professional services for different clients. So we will be focusing on the outsourcing option in October. November, as we have traditionally done, will be an enforcement update. What is the SEC, the Department of Justice, and FINRA up to these days? And what, excuse me, should you as an investment manager or portfolio manager be concerned about? And then finally, in December, we're doing a program on exit strategies for fund managers. And there's a variety of them that have come to the fore recently, including roll-ups to buyout funds with varying degrees of control being transferred, The use of ESOPs, essentially 100% management leveraged buyouts as a means to maintain control of the organization, but nevertheless monetize your interest in order to reduce the burdens on the current management team, but without burdening the future management team to any great extent. And then finally, outright sales, retirements, and other ways of transferring the ownership of your business. So... Today is entity selection, choosing the right structure. October is outsourcing options for operational considerations. November is enforcement and compliance, of course. And December is exit strategies. Okay, 
Moving on to our first slide, this is a very important distinction that is often lost in the clutter of uh, asset management discussions. And that is, there is a fundamental distinction between the offering of a service and the offering of a product. And each one has its own regulatory complexities that are often glossed over in the pursuit of sales or otherwise raising capital for your venture. A service is an investment management service. It's the laying on of hands, the provision of investment advice with respect to securities. A separately managed account is the archetypical manifestation of a service. So let's make sure we all understand that model. And a client who has assets in a custody account, it could be a brokerage account or a bank account or a trust account, engages by contract the manager to manage those assets. The manager may or may not have discretion, but generally does not have the ability to vest the title of those assets in his own name. That is the protection that a separately managed account brings to the table. And in those instances where the manager is providing a service, the manager does not need to be FINRA registered because they're not acting as a broker, is not selling an interest in a fund because there is no fund. It's a separately managed account. And if the manager is holding oneself out or himself out, he needs to consider whether or not he needs state registration as an investment advisor. All states are different. All states vary in what are the de minimis tests for when someone has to register as a state-registered investment advisor. As we know, Dodd-Frank created hard lines for federal registration, and if you are exclusively a private fund manager, meaning you can fit within the private fund exception or the venture capital exception, then you are left with state registration until you hit $150 million of assets under management. If you have $1 of separate account money, then that immediately reduces that threshold to $100 million for federal purposes. But that does not address when you have to register with the state. If you are holding yourself out with an open website, promoting your investment advisory services and how you uh, manage money and who your accounts are, then that act of holding out with respect to the potential provision of a service means that you will most likely need to be state registered at a minimum as an investment advisor. And so do not allow either promoters or others in the industry to confuse you. There is a definite line between the offering of a service and the offering of a product. A product in this case is a piece of paper or an electronic manifestation of it, a security, an interest in a fund. And so when a manager acts as the promoter of a fund that it manages, as well as perhaps owning the general partner in that fund, it is no longer selling a service. It is selling a product, and that product either needs to be registered or needs to fit within an exception from registration. 
If it cannot fit within an exception, or if the exception is lost for some reason, then the product needs to be registered with all the collateral consequences that apply to that. So as listed on slide one, if you decide to create a security by saying I am going to manage a product, then the product needs to fit within a Securities Act of 1933 exemption. The normal one is Regulation D, or statutorily Section 4A2 of the 33 Act. You need to fit within a Securities Exchange Act of 1934 exemption with respect to public reporting companies. So if you are in a, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but you're in a 3C7 fund, you can have an unlimited number of investors for the 40 Act. However, once you hit 2,000 investors, you effectively become a public reporting company under the 1934 Exchange Act. And as the name implies, the Exchange Act, if you are going to allow trading in the secondary interest, the secondary market in interest in your fund, then they need to either be registered security or there has to be an exception available. The normal one, again, is under Reg D, where the restrictions have lapsed because the securities have been outstanding for at least a year. Then you also need the 40 Act exemption, which we'll talk about in a moment. If you are going to be trading, or excuse me, promoting the interest in your fund, that is acting as a broker. However, there is an exception. If you are the manager of the fund, that does not require you to be registered with FINRA. That's the issuer's exemption. And then finally, you have to worry about tax and commodity futures trading commission regulation and exemptions. For tax, the most important issue is almost always going to be avoiding entity-level tax by being a flow-through vehicle. You're either a flow-through vehicle as a uh, partnership or you're a flow-through vehicle because you're a conduit under Subchapter M and you've registered as a regulated investment company or REIT or similar type vehicle. If you are attempting to be a partnership, then you need to be aware of the myriad rules that can cause you to lose that status. So, for example, the, the most potent rule that the IRS has is the publicly traded partnership rules. Now, there's an exception under the publicly traded partnership rules that, uh, that are applicable for entities that have fewer than 100 investors. So that dovetails nicely with the 3C1 exemption. But if I have a 3C7 fund that has potentially more than 100 investors, these are all, of course, of course qualified purchasers or entities treated as qualified purchasers. If I have to count all of those investors, now the question becomes, how do I qualify because I no longer have the 100-person safe harbor? And the way you have to do that is it's called facts and circumstances. And you have to show that the redemptions that you promote inside the fund are not substantially equivalent of an exchange. Because if they are, then the publicly traded partnership rules will apply and will force you into being taxed at an, as an entity, as an association taxable as a corporation, which generally is a terrible result 
because of the drag that such taxation puts on the returns of the investors. Now, with the lowering of the federal marginal tax rate for corporate entities in the, in the 2017 Tax Act, it may be a slightly closer question, but it's still a 21% drag on returns. So unless expenses or other structures are as such would result in a reduction of your returns greater than 21%, there is still an advantage to being a flow-through entity for tax purposes. Now, oil and gas partnerships have a special rule, pipeline companies, et cetera, under the publicly traded partnership rules, which essentially allow them to avoid being treated as publicly traded partnerships by statute. And that statutory exception is, of course, very important to that industry and the structures that have been set up with respect to oil and gas promotional activities. So in summary, the most important thing to remember is there's a, a fundamental distinction between a service and a product. Now, one of the innovations we've seen in the marketplace is we see everyone talking about their quote-unquote platform. I have no idea what a quote-unquote platform is because there is no exception for platforms under the securities laws, the tax laws, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission laws, the advisor laws, or the state laws that regulate these entities. So you have to peel back the jargon. What exactly is this platform that is being promoted? And when you peel it back, you will see that invariably it is either the offering of a service, namely investment advisory services, or the offering of a product. So let's say that an individual manager or entity manager decides that instead of having the overhead of a fund, it is going to have a series of separately managed accounts, and those managed accounts are going to be managed coterminously. Same investment process, assets are going to go up and down. So what are the benefits versus detriments of having that structure? We'll talk about that in depth in a moment, but unless there is effectively an unincorporated association among the members that would be likely considered a service. That is what we have seen most, quote-unquote, platforms actually espousing, the idea of a fundless program where we have coterminous investing of a series of separately managed accounts, each account being held in its own custodian arrangement, and obtaining diversification within the confines of the account. Diversification is a very important consideration here. If you're investing a relatively small amount of money, you probably will not be able to reach the diversification level that you are hoping to achieve. On the other hand, if you're a large institutional investor and are investing upwards of two, $300 million, well, now you can definitely achieve diversification in a custody account. And with that custody account, have transparency, simplified accounting, your custodian, and the control of the account away from the manager. So going to slide two, the Investment Company Act is our first stop. 
we need to find a pigeonhole, because if we can't find a pigeonhole under Section 3 of the Investment Company Act, we will be defined as if we were an investment company. And as an investment company, we're then going to be required to register with the SEC. The problem, of course, with registration is it's expensive. And, believe it or not, there are certain instances where an investment fund will not be eligible to register with the SEC because the size of the account is too small or because it doesn't have the proper assets inside the account. So <coughs> finding the proper exemption or pigeonhole under the Investment Company Act is very important. As noted above, the, the most common one is 3C1, and certainly for a fund that's starting out, it's 3C1. And 3C1 requires no general solicitation and fewer than 100 holders. Um, debt and equity securities are counted for purposes of the 100. So if you're gearing the portfolio and you're issuing debt securities as opposed to borrowing money from a bank, that number of holders will count, unless, of course, it's just short-term paper. Now, all of those exceptions are very important because if you look at certain structures in the economy, such as CDOs and CLOs, many of them are holding debt securities, but they are, in fact, securities, not whole loans under the SEC's uh, Rebus test, uh, or not the SEC, rather, the Supreme Court's Family Resemblance Rebus test, and as a result, it's likely that those debt instruments will be deemed to be securities, and you have to count the holders of those along with your equity holders. The consequence of being over 100 is actually a fairly draconian result. You end up losing your exempt status under the Investment Company Act, and it is now a prohibited transaction. It's a void transaction if you are attempting to uh, operate a fund that's outside of the applicable exemption. Now, there are other exemptions available, and we're only going to highlight a few of them here. 3C7, of course, <coughs> is the Qualified Purchaser uh, Fund, and that is applicable whenever the investor is, and all investors must be, qualified purchasers. There are no exceptions. There's no... Um, de minimis rule here, every investor has to be a qualified purchaser, not formed for the purpose of acquiring the investment, in order for the 3C7 exception from registration to apply. You can have an unlimited number of qualified purchasers, but that means all the natural people have to have net worth, excluding their houses, of $5 million in investable assets. And institutions have to have $25 million with certain limited exceptions. So if, for example, a registered mutual fund that's managed by a uh, registered investment advisor and the mutual fund family has at least $100 million in assets, then a fund in that family, even though it may only have the seed capital, would be qualified as a qualified purchaser by way of its status as a quib, and there's a regulatory syllogism that you have to follow to get there, but the industry is fairly confident that that stands 
and hold and would pass muster. The type of entity that can be a 3C7 is really a, virtually anything. It could be a partnership, it could be a corporation, uh, potentially could be an offshore corporation to the extent that you're looking at it from the point of view of U.S. investors. And then the other very popular exception is 3C5. And these are generally receivables and debt funds or real estate funds where the interest is secured by real estate. So you're talking about real estate debt funds, but they're secured by real estate. Now, certain mezzanine-type structures um, have by no action letter been ordained by the SEC as meeting the requirements of 3C5. But again, as is often the case in the 40 Act, the lore is more important than the law. And one needs to understand how these provisions have been interpreted and the gloss that has been put on each of these requirements by the SEC and the staff of the SEC over time through various interpretations and no action letters. So turning to slide number three, let's focus for a moment on the Securities Act of 1933 and how a fund that we've created, a product, qualifies under the 33 Act. And again, there are a number of requirements that need to be met. Many of these are second nature, but it's worthwhile to revisit them occasionally to make sure that we haven't missed something, and more importantly, we understand why some of these limitations are there. The requirement of the 33 Act is no public offering no underwriting, no general solicitation. Now, that dovetails with Section 3C of the 40 Act, 3C1 and 3C7, where no general solicitation is a requirement for qualification under the Act. What that means, effectively, is no open website. Let me repeat that. No open website. If the advisor has an open website and speaking about his services, then the advisor needs to be registered as an investment advisor in either the state or the federal government or with the federal government, depending on the assets under management. If that advisor is also listing its funds on that open public website, that will constitute a general solicitation. This issue is a paramount concern because investors invariably find their funds through Google searches and otherwise. Now, some may say, well, what's wrong with that? I may agree what's wrong with that in the general context of, of the world. However, from the point of view of the securities laws, there's a lot wrong with it. The most important of which is that it violates both the 40 Act and the 33 Act if you are engaged in a general solicitation. Now, many of you are scratching your head saying, well, wait a minute, I thought the JOBS Act changed all that. It did, provided you comply with the JOBS Act. And this is very important. There is no mixing and matching between the traditional way of offering a private placement security and the JOBS Act way. You are either completely embracing the general solicitation exceptions under the JOBS Act, or you're not. And if you're not, that means the traditional way still prevails. No open website, 
no general solicitation, even handing out a business card under some of the pre-existing precedents was a problem. Having a telephone book listing comparable to a website was a problem under the prior jurisprudence. No resales within one year. Limited liquidity. And then the Reg D safe harbor requires it actually file a Form D in order to invoke the Reg D safe harbor. And even if you do, you still have to worry about state law, state blue sky filings. And blue sky filings, um, many states have so-called self-executing exemptions if you have a limited number of investors from that state or if you have institutional investors from that state. But every state's blue sky rules are different. And if you assume that you don't have to do any state blue sky, you're probably sadly mistaken. Or you may get lucky, in which case you fit within an exception by default, but I'd much rather plan ahead and understand what exactly needs to be filed with respect to a particular state. Now, New York is a unique uh, jurisdiction. There are some lawyers in New York who take the position that if you file a Form D, under Regulation D for the federal government, it becomes a federally covered security, and therefore there is no New York filing. But the New York uh, Attorney General takes a different view. In, from their point of view, the Martin Act uh, essentially says that they're not registering the security, and so the federal exemption is irrelevant. They're registering the issuer as a broker. And the failure to file the Martin Act form effectively means that you've subjected your offering to New York jurisdiction. The better answer, it seems to us, is it's a relatively cheap form of insurance. You file the Form 99 with the New York um, Attorney General before you offer securities in the state of New York. And this applies not just to New York offerings, but across the United States if you're planning, or, or even internationally, if you're planning on accessing the New York market. So the conservative view is you file the Form 99 and you essentially refresh it as time goes on. So let's turn to the JOBS Act. What did the JOBS Act do? Well, it effectively gave us the ability to engage in a general solicitation and still comply with the 40 Act, Section 3C1, 3C7, and the CFTC exemptions. So by statute, the Congress created a general solicitation exception in the context of a private placement. So you're not filing a registration statement with the SEC under the 34 Act. You're not providing periodic reporting like a 10-K or, or an 8-K or a 10-Q, uh, unless, of course, you hit those reporting thresholds that we spoke about earlier. But you are able to not worry about friends and family, not worry about whether or not you have an open website. You can send out blanket emails to anyone and in order to do this, you have to file a Form D. You have to check the box for 506C. 
and you must verify accredited investor status of investors and retain those records. So let's put this in the context. What does it mean to verify accredited investor status? There is no safe harbor, but the regulations do suggest a couple of ways that you can accomplish this. You get a letter from an investor's lawyer, accountant, broker, banker, that says either this person has whatever the requisite dollar amount for purposes of the net worth test, or their last two years' tax returns, they have the requisite income level, or let's say that someone's income is published because they're an executive of a company and that company is publicly traded and the proxy statement includes their compensation and you look at it and it sees that for the last two years the person's been paid more than $300,000 on a joint return and is expected to be paid that amount going forward. Well, you can use data such as that in order to verify income as well. Or you can use a service. There are service providers out there for a relatively small amount of money who will obtain and update, retain the records and update the records of your investors and they will give you a verification that Mr. X or Ms. Y has met the requisite requirements for accreditation under the Reg D of the 33 Act. Now, when the Jobs Act came out, there was a hue and cry raised by competitors of the private fund industry who thought that this was going to take the cream off the top and that hedge funds would be in the ascendancy and they would have a difficult time competing for investors. That didn't come to pass, in large measure because of what I call the disinformation campaign, where investors were all of a sudden cowed into believing that they were giving up all of control over their privacy of information and that it became impossible for anyone to give them comfort that their information would be held in secret. So as a result, the JOBS Act never really gained legs and the number of offerings, especially in the private fund space, continues to hover between 10 and 15% of offerings are actually Jobs Act offerings. The problem is, however, that in an information age where information is the coin of the realm and ubiquitous, there are those who just don't quite appreciate the fact that it is truly a go-no-go -no -go proposition. Either you are embracing the Jobs Act general solicitation and at that time, verifying accredited investor status and maintaining those records, or <clears throat> you're doing it the old-fashioned way under 506B, in which case you cannot have an open website, you cannot be sending out blast emails, you must limit your solicitation activity to friends and family, and you must maintain records of to whom you forwarded your fund documentation. So, you know, which is easier? Certainly the JOBS Act uh, prevents footfalls in your general solicitation, and it also allows you to leapfrog gatekeepers. One of the big issues that we always hear uh, new managers complain about is they're told by 
investment council who act as gatekeepers to institutional investors. You're too small. We can't be more than a certain percentage of your assets. We can't represent more than 10% of your assets. And we only make investments in $10 million or more increments. And the result of that, of course, is that your fund needs to be at least $100 million in order to entertain that investment. That's normally when you'd go back to them and say, okay, well, if you're managed, you want to invest $10 million and you're intrigued by the strategy, we'd be happy to take a separately managed account. Of course, you need to have the compliance policies and procedures in place in order to do side-by-side -side investing. But there's no reason under those circumstances that you couldn't then say, we'll take the separately managed account at $10 million and therefore obviate the biggest complaint against you being too small or too new. If you do a separately managed account, they have control, they have transparency, it's their custodian, and the fees are what are negotiated on your investment management agreement. From a compliance point of view, of course, you still need to make sure that you have the proper registrations as an advisor, and you also need to have side-by-side -side investment policies, et cetera, to make sure that you're not scalping or front-running one account against the other and that you're properly allocating investment opportunities between the products that you manage and the services that you provide. <coughs> so uh, the JOBS Act was truly a revolution. We're seeing now a second generation of acceptance by those who were not cowed by the original uh, disinformation campaign. And as a result, uh, there have been more and more uh, brokers, placement agents, and others who see the JOBS Act as a way to reach potential investors who previously they did not have access to because of the friends and family limitations. And I think managers are also wary of the footfall. And then, of course, the last point is if the fund, if they're selling a product, and the fund has a performance fee or a performance allocation, the federal securities laws require that the investor there meet the definition of a qualified client, which, of course, is an intermediary step between accredited investor and qualified purchaser. It means you have to have $2.1 million of net worth, not including your house, and it also means that you could have $1 million under the management of the particular manager and still qualify as a qualified client. Well, managers look at that and say, if I need to have investors who meet the $2.1 million test in order for me to take a performance fee, well, I might as well get the verification because the accredited investor tests, as we know, are a lower number. And so, therefore, <coughs> excuse me, it's a way to kill two birds with one stone and raise assets from a previously untapped marketplace. This is still, of course, an evolving world. Going to the next slide, the issuer's exemption under the 34 Act is not as elastic as everyone would like it to believe. If you read the rule itself, it is fairly narrow and requires whoever is going to be availing themselves of this exception to not be currently registered with a broker-dealer or previously registered within the last two years with a broker-dealer, or perhaps one year. I have to double-check that number. Um, but more importantly, to have other duties, that they are not exclusively engaged in selling interests in the fund. Now, if they're selling services, separately managed account, the issuer's exemption doesn't apply because you're not issuing anything. 
you're simply selling a service. On the other hand, if you're selling interest in the fund that are managed by the investment advisor, then the, um, the fund manager is deemed to be an officer, effectively, uh, or discharging the same duties of the issuer, and, of course, all of the significant principles of the issuer are therefore available. Now, one of the innovations that we've seen recently is the so-called manager-less fund. There's no reason why a manager needs to be an independent third party managing per, by contract. It is very possible for a fund to be created to have a board of directors or even trustees elected by the investors and for those for that board to then hire an employee to actually manage the assets of the fund. These are called self-managed funds and are one of those innovations that we're seeing in the marketplace. The fund still needs to fit within a 40-act exception, but look what you've just done. Because you're only managing the fund, you're no longer an, quote-unquote, third-party advisor. And so technically, the Advisors Act and all the state regulation that goes along with it doesn't apply. And we're only focusing on a company that is now managing its own assets. And there, the officers are acting as um, under the um, the issuer's exemption in order to raise capital for the company that employs them. Now, the problem with that model is it's really not scalable because as soon as you take on a third-party engagement under an advisory contract, you've just triggered all of the investment advisor rules at both the federal and the state level. But a manager who is <clears throat> focused on managing money in only one way and will not attempt to create other distribution channels and believes that it has legs in this strategy, may want to consider an advisor-less fund that's managed by an independent board of directors elected by the investors. Sort of a mutual fund, but if it's not large enough and it fits within one of the 40 Act exemptions, it can be a private fund that has employees. And again, there's no reason, there's no limitation under the 40 Act or any other statute against a self-managed fund. The only real practical limitation is scale. And as long as the manager believes in the strategy, it's something to consider as a means of raising assets. Now, of course, once you're an employee, you're not being paid performance fees. You're being paid compensation with bonuses. And those bonuses may or may not be tied to the assets, but you've also potentially eliminated the requirements of qualified client status. You still have the 40 Act issues, but you may not have those same limitations under the Advisors Act. And of course, there's always the caveat that before you do something like this, you must check state law and make sure that state law doesn't have a different take or twist on what we're trying to accomplish here. We talked about the Martin Act, and again, it's a relatively straightforward form. For a smaller fund, there is a fee involved, and it, it can be steep. However, in terms of avoiding entanglements with the New York Attorney General, uh, a la Elliot Spitzer from 15 years ago, um, it's definitely something to consider and to talk over carefully with your counsel. 
Okay, <clears throat> let's talk about the brother-sister regulator under the federal government, namely the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. The Commodity Futures Trading Commission um, has as its jurisdiction commodity futures trading. It's in its name. That's what the Act specifies. It also, after Dodd-Frank, has jurisdiction over spot commodity trading under its anti-fraud authority. But it doesn't regulate spot commodities. So if you want to buy or sell barrels of oil in the spot market, generally you are not subject to Commodity Futures Trading Commission regulation. On the other hand, if you buy barrels of oil for uh, January 2019 delivery, well, you've just bought a futures contract. That is subject to CFTC regulation. There are available exemptions, <coughs> namely Rule 413 and Rule 4.7 and 4.5 under the Commodity Trading Act, the Commodity Exchange Act, rather. And those exemptions uh, are intended to be somewhat de minimis exemptions for hedge funds, private equity funds, and mutual funds that are regulated by the SEC that happen to have some degree of commodity exposure. Now, the way, let's take registered funds first. Registered funds are, it can be diversified or concentrated under the 40 Act, but the real control for 40 Act funds comes out of the Internal Revenue Code, which imposes a diversification test and a qualified income test. 90% of your income must be from interest, dividends, and capital gains with respect to the business of investing in securities and certain other related business businesses. Generally, commodities are not considered to be within that traditional business. So <clears throat> registered funds can either live within the 10% limitation or they set up so-called wholly owned subsidiaries, corporations, and what do corporations pay? They pay dividends. And so therefore, the corporation that holds the commodities pays dividends to the registered investment company, which then pays them out to investors. Now, the commodities inside the corporation that we've just set up now to, to act as a blocker have uh, gains and, and losses and profits, which will be now subject to U.S. tax. So in order for this to work, it's necessary to move that corporation offshore into a jurisdiction that does not itself impose a corporate-level tax. So that's why you will see certain registered mutual funds actually having interest in wholly owned offshore corporations that trade in commodities. Now, the IRS does require those offshore companies to actually pay dividends to the domestic company, which in then is required to distribute those amounts. Now, most investors in mutual funds elect to reinvest, and so there's a deemed distribution rule at the investor level, but with respect to these underlying companies, they're still required to actually upstream a dividend, which means that the company then has to turn around move, and then take the cash and move it back into the uh, commodity trading entity in order to make sure that 
you still have the degree of exposure that you want to those commodities in order to generate the gains. So there is a requirement to actually distribute up and then reinvest down in order to maintain the level. Um, that was changed uh, about a year and a half ago by the IRS <coughs> that said that it was necessary to actually make the distribution even though under subpart F and some of the other uh, arcane anti-abuse rules, a foreign company that's wholly owned by a U.S. company is deemed to have made distributions even though they actually didn't move cash, and that, of course, is an anti-tax avoidance rule. Here has nothing to do with the taxability of the movement of the dollars and everything to do with the tax qualification requirement. And that's an important distinction that oftentimes the industry misses, which very much like the distinction between a service and a product, when you're talking about taxation in the investment world, there's two, there's two very important principles. One is the um, tax incidence, and the other is the tax qualification. And so in order for a mutual fund to continue to, to be able to be a conduit and avoid entity-level tax, it's essential that it makes distributions of its income and that it receives the right type of income. And so, uh, once again, we have some um, 70 or 80-year-old rules dictating policy, but at the time that the rules were adopted, they made a lot of sense, and before they get changed, obviously Congress wants to make sure it's not making change for change's sake. In this one, it probably would make sense to, to clarify the rule and allow for the deemed distribution, since the money's going to be reinvested anyway, but, you know, that's for the policymakers to decide. Um, so we talked about securities laws. We talked about the CFTC. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, one more point on the CFTC. By rule, the CFTC adopted the Jobs Act principles. Uh, the Jobs Act, remember, it says for all purposes of the federal securities laws, and so uh, that has been interpreted by the SEC and the and the bar as applying for purposes of the 40 Act, the 33 Act, and the 34 Act, and the Advisors Act, but it's not, it's limited to securities. And so therefore the CFTC by exemptive rule said, that's okay, we'll allow you to do a general solicitation and still fit within the 413 exemptions, which generally require no general solicitation. So if the CFTC has a jurisdiction, then over certain funds that are primarily securities funds but have obtained exposure through uh, the, the leverage effect of buying commodities on margin, as long as you don't exceed the limits set forth in the exception, it will not be deemed to be a commodity pool. So let's flip to uh, the comparison chart. which is on slide nine. And this is, you know, a uh, distinction between a separately managed account or a fund. So, some of the major uh, requirements of these rules and whether or not you're, um, you know, whether you have to do it for a separately managed account or a fund. Audited financial statements, there's no requirement under the law for an audited financial statement, but the entity that owns the SAM may very well get an audit 
and we'll get confirmations from their auditors of to the custodian of what's held in that account. <coughs> of course, a fund has to be audited by a PCAOB eligible member firm in accordance with GAAP. Organizational costs. Now, this one, even five years after the custody rule is modified, we still see documents being prepared that don't necessarily understand the rule. The rule is that for tax purposes, organizational costs must be amortized over 180 months. That's 15 years. However, for book purposes, for GAAP, organizational costs must be expensed on day one. Now, why did the um, FAS, FASB change the rule to require immediate expensing? Because the SEC was tired of complaints from investors who were being paid out based on the GAAP NAV, and the last person to leave the fund was ending up with nothing but a pile of organizational documents because they were an asset on the books of the fund and had not been fully amortized. And so it was believed that the failure to fully amortize books and records um, when funds failed, and there's a high proportion of funds that fail, resulted in investors not getting their full return. So this way, by requiring immediate expensing, you eliminate the problem. The investor NAV only reflects the actual cash and other assets that are in the fund. Now, of course, that means that the first investor in really gets hammered. And in order to avoid that drag on return, most fund managers agree to absorb the organizational costs in order to avoid that burden on the first investors in the fund. Now, investors should not get a free ride. There is a cost associated with, with creating the structure that they want. And so normally what most fund managers do is they require reimbursement. In other words, um, they put an expense cap on the fund and they say as long as the operating expenses of the fund are below the cap, the manager reserves the right to seek reimbursement for the organizational costs it incurred to create the fund, up, of course, to the total amount that was paid. The reimbursement arrangement has the effect of spreading out the organizational costs up to the cap over a number of years. As long as that structure is faithfully followed, the accountants will not require you to book the expense on the first day. But it, it nevertheless allows for, if the fund is immediately liquidated, obviously there's no reimbursement available, and so the investors are protected. It also allows the tax rules to be complied with because they're still being amortized against income, remember, over 180 months, and so there's no run on the fisc by taking an immediate expense deduction. And the manager, while they have fronted the expenses, if their investment strategy is successful, knows that over a period of time, they will be able to recoup some of that invested cost. <clears throat> of course, the problem with this structure is um, putting a cap that the industry and the investors will accept and also making sure that there is enough of a headroom, enough of a gap 
in order to be able to make it worthwhile because there is some drafting that's required to structure it. Going down the list, custody. In a SAM, it's the owner's own custodian. In the fund, the fund must have a qualified custodian. Now, one of the interesting innovations that we've seen recently is the use of cryptocurrency. And I'm not just talking about Bitcoin, although that is an issue, or Ethereum. I'm talking about people who are creating interest in companies and calling them initial coin offerings. Now, in our view, in order for that coin offering not to run afoul of the securities laws, it has to be a very specific utility-driven type coin or be tied to something where we have an SEC exemptive order, such as, for example, interest in real estate co-ops, where the SEC has said that an interest in a real estate co-op, even if it's called stock, is not a security, <clears throat> primarily, I guess, because they didn't want to have landlord-tenant disputes all of a sudden subject to Rule 10b-5. So we have that type of paradigm available, and there are circumstances where initial coin offerings would qualify under those rules. Um, if the coin offering is done properly, then it would be a security, and if you comply with Reg D and even do a Jobs Act 506C general solicitation, what of it? It's a security, and the regulator should be happy that you're complying with all the rules. The issue, of course, is custody. And how do you custody an asset that is uncertificated, digitized, and may or may not have a verifier that other than perhaps the company? Well, there is a model available in the FAQs under the custody rule. The SEC did say that if the um, holder, namely the fund, holds an uncertificated instrument that was issued by the issuer, it can satisfy that by either having a qualified custodian hold the subscription agreement or name the qualified custodian as a nominee. Now, what does that do, naming the custodian as a nominee? It effectively means that the manager can't defraud investors by directing whoever the company is to retitle the security or the coins in the manager's name and transfer them to an account outside of the jurisdiction for the benefit solely of the manager, in effect, you know, preventing fraud. So it's very similar, if you think about it, to a two-key safe deposit box. The person who owns the safe deposit box has one key, and the bank has the other. So in this circumstance, if you have coins that are issued by a company complying with Reg D, and those coins require both a qualified custodian and the manager or the fund uh, representative in order to move them out of one wallet to another wallet, then you've probably met with all of the requirements of the custody rule and you've also met, you know, as interpreted by the SEC and the FAQs. But, again, this is not for the faint of heart, and it is based on analysis. There have been no rulings, to my knowledge, by the SEC on this issue, or the staff of the SEC, I should say. And so you are necessarily relying on analysis, but it's a good analysis. And, you know, otherwise the uh, FAQ really makes no sense if you don't apply it in the way that I've described.
Going further down this list, redemptions for SAMs anytime. It's your money. For funds, it's going to depend on whether it's open or closed. If it's a PE model, closed-end, private fund, then it's locked up for a long period of time, usually until there is an actual liquidity event of the underlying asset. If it's a hedge fund, it may have liquidity, but beware the publicly traded partnership rules. And any liquidity more than monthly, or excuse me, quarterly, is going to need to make sure that your tax counsel is comfortable that you haven't um, tripped the publicly traded partnership rules. If you do <coughs> semi-monthly <coughs> or monthly, those are probably on the line. Quarterly is generally accepted as not creating the substantial equivalent of an exchange. And again, you need to test the facts and circumstances on these issues. Performance fees, we talked a little bit about the fact that in a fund, you need to have qualified clients. The same rule applies in a separately managed account. Um, and in terms of whether it's an expense or an allocation, from the point of view of the investor in a SAM, it's an expense. From the point of view of the investor in a fund, well, it's an allocation of profit away from the owners who put up the capital. And it's always amusing to me when I hear uh, politicians and state regulators say, look at these massive performance fees that portfolio managers have earned. Well, the legal documentation is such that the portfolio manager actually owns that 20%. And so to take it from the portfolio manager would essentially be taking property without due process. That was the deal that was cut. It's not like it's a fee being charged after the fact. It's very much like a sharecropper arrangement where the person who's working the field gives a share of the crop to the person who owns the land. But the person who is actually working the field owns that share of the crop. It's not like he's being paid a fee. So it's a very important, perhaps subtle distinction. I think it's material. Others in the industry think it's material, um, but it's obviously it goes to the fundamental nature of what a performance allocation is and whether or not the owner is being given, given something after it's been accrued or whether they own it from day one. If they own it from day one, it's kind of hard to say that you're paying them after the fact as a fee. So there are certain... Um, Defensive strategies to protect against a run on the fund that you'll see in a fund, such as gates, redemption suspensions, mandatory redemptions, liquidity of the fund limitations, etc., none of those apply in a separately managed account. So if we, if we turn in the remaining time to slide 12, one of the things that we've been hearing a lot about is the so-called decentralized fundless model, and that's on the left side, where it's managed coterminously, there's no entity, joint transactions and compliance issues, however, are huge. And if the manager also happens to be managing a registered mutual fund, it either has to fit within the massive mutual no action letter or it needs to get an exemptive order if it's negotiating any terms in these coterminous investments um, other than price. 
And that's a very, very important consideration. The 40 Act has severe limitations on so-called joint transactions between the investment company and other investors. And one needs to be aware of those. And, of course, the lore of the exemptive order history that allows certain practices but does not allow others. Comparing the fundless model to the private fund model, you have a commingled, one pool, diversified returns, a larger number of names, you know, securities as possible, but you do have higher expenses. And so the balancing is between diversification and, a, you know, a larger number of names versus potentially a lower cost. Going to the next slide, slide 13, there is the um, variations on the theme of the private fund, the series funds, the so-called SPV, the throw-forward model. In other words, if I have investors come in to an illiquid asset class that happens to be periodically prepaying, and what do I do in order to keep the assets reinvested? Well, they have to invest and reinvest in something. If they reinvest in the same fund, that's fine only if the investors stay the same. If not, I have to strike an NAV. One way around that is to throw the assets into the next series and keep doing that serially. The problem, of course, is series are each treated as separate investment companies, and the costs associated with administering that, custodying it, and then getting a verified accounting you know, audited financial statements can be very high. The other sort of clarification on terminology is the so-called private open-end fund, which are the hedge fund models, meaning the, the fund stands ready on its liquidity terms to accept investors and to provide redemption, but only if the general partner approves. And then the so-called private closed-end model, this is the private equity model, where you have commitments are made, assets are deployed, and cash is distributed as, uh, as the uh, underlying investments are sold. And finally, the, the last slide is sort of a comparison of registered products, <coughs> registered investment companies, both open-end and closed-end. Many of the terms are the same, the probably the most important differences are a business development company, which is treated as a closed-end fund, registered fund under the 40 Act, can have a performance fee, provided certain requirements are made and certain managerial assistance is offered. That's unlike the registered fund model, where the only place you could have a performance fee is if it's a fulcrum fee. Um, Closed-end funds can be 33-act registered, but oftentimes they're not, especially if they're privately offered interval funds. And then in an open-end fund, they cannot issue a senior security, whereas uh, closed-end funds may issue a preferred class or senior security, and often that is part of the model that's established by the investors for purposes of uh, extracting the returns. So that's our survey of various fund structures. I'm sorry, I was losing my voice there. It's uh, sometimes hard to sustain conversation for an hour and a few minutes. 
I hope to see you next time for our next session, as I said, when we will be dealing with various outsourcing strategies in our life cycle series. Have a great day. This is Greg Novak at Pepper Hamilton, and thank you for your attention.